If you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 28. 2 Chronicles chapter 28. Now today we are continuing our study through 2 Chronicles, actually 1 Chronicles, actually Samuel, actually Ruth, all the way through here. And we get to the part of the history of Israel and even the passages which some of the most well-known, some of the sweetest, some of the most meaningful and rich passages in the New Testament find their root. These are going to help us understand some of these passages in a way that will turn on more lights, not change their meaning, but turn on more lights, understanding the riches of the mercy of God. Included in this is the, the well-known passage, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan. And as we go through this chapter, chapter 28, we're going to have our eyes and hearts drawn attention to one of the greatest threats that's always faced God's people. And one of the greatest threats that has always faced God's people, whether in the Old Covenant, uh, which is the passage uh, that the people uh, who we're addressing in this passage here would have been in, or now in the New Covenant, this threat is the belief that God's love for us in saving us was the kind of love that you'd show a person who was somehow worthy of it. Someone who it made sense to show kindness to. uh, Someone who had a claim on that kindness. Who could could give a reason for why they were saved. You know, like a friend. Or a son or a daughter. Maybe even it's more business-like, you know. Yes, God helped me before I could pay him back. But like an investor who I will pay back and give a return for his investment. Of all the fears and all the threats that somebody is telling you when you turn on social media, that face you, that face the church, this is a greater threat and has always been. Because dear brothers and sisters of Christ, you are that by grace through faith. And you'll understand that that view of love is a very weak view of your sin. But it's also a very weak view of God's love, which is much greater than that puny view of God's love. So you got your Bibles. We're turned to 2 Chronicles chapter 20. I'm going to invite you to pray with me before we read our passage. Father, as we now turn to the part of our worship service which you have designed, which now your gospel is proclaimed in its native language, Preaching, announcing, heralding while we sit and listen to news of events that you have done. Lord, I pray that you would incline our ears to hear you. I pray that you would be merciful to us and soften our hearts and that we would be shepherded by this passage. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Second Chronicles chapter 28. We're going to read the... Uh, Well, we'll read up until verse 15. Ahaz, 
was 20 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as his father David had done. But he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. He even made metal images for the Baals. And he made offerings in the valley of the son of Hinnom and burned his sons as an offering according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills and every and under every green tree. Therefore the Lord his God gave him into the hand of the king of Syria who defeated him and took captive a great number of his people and brought them to Damascus. He was also given into the hand of the king of Israel who struck him in, uh, with great force. For Pekah, the son of Remaliah, killed 120,000 from Judah in one day, all of them men of valor, because they had forsaken the Lord, the God of their fathers. And Zikri, a mighty man of Ephraim, killed Messiah, the king's son, and Azrakam, the commander of the palace, and Elkanah, the next in authority to the king. The men of Israel took captive 200,000 of the relatives, men, oh, sorry, women, sons, and daughters. They also took much spoil from them and brought the spoil to Samaria. But a prophet of the Lord was there, whose name was Oded, and he went out to meet the army that came to Samaria and said to them, Behold, because the Lord, the God of your fathers, was angry with Judah, he gave them into your hand, but you have killed them in a rage that has reached up to heaven. And now you intend to subjugate the people of Judah and Jerusalem, male and female, as your slaves? Have you not sins of your own against the Lord your God? Now hear me and send back the captives from your relatives whom you have taken, for the fierce wrath of the Lord is upon you. Certain chiefs also of the men of Ephraim Azariah, the son of Johanan, Berechiah, the son of Meshillamoth, Jezekiah, the son of Shalom, and Amasa, the son of Hadlai, stood up against those who were coming from the war and said to them, you shall not bring the captives in here. For you propose to bring upon us guilt against the Lord in addition to our present sins and guilt. For our guilt is already great and there is fierce wrath against Israel. So the armed men left the captives and the spoil before the princes and all the assembly. And the men who have been mentioned by name rose and took the captives. And with the spoil, they clothed all who were naked among them. They clothed them, gave them sandals, provided them with food and drink and anointed them. And carrying all the feeble among them on donkeys, they brought them to their kinsfolk at Jericho, the city of palm trees. Then they returned to Samaria. Thus far the word of the Lord. So Ahaz, he's the man who holds the title son of David. David not being his actual father, but his great, 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 great grandfather. But he holds the title son of David and all the promises that come with it from God. He's not only bad at following the Lord, he hates following the Lord. He leads his people into idolatry and he makes it into a national pastime. He builds idols. He makes idolatrous altars in every place he can possibly find. If he's got spare money, he's building an altar to an idol. If he's got spare 
places. He'll build an altar to an idol. He even burns his own sons alive to idols for profit. And the chronicler wants us to know that Ahaz led his people to do the exact same practices that prompted God to evict the Canaanites from Israel, from the land of Israel, that prompted God to come to destroy them and drive them out of the land of Canaan. You're exactly the same right now as the nations God drove out. So the Lord sends two armies to punish Ahaz, the son of David, and also to punish his citizens with him. So the first army is the Syrian army. And the second is the Israelite army. And they kind of team up to do this. The rebel split away kingdom to the north. You'll remember that Israel as a kingdom split into two. The southern kingdom, which was reigned by the sons of David, called Judah. The northern kingdom retained the name Israel. And so this northern rebel kingdom, along with Syria, comes and attacks them. And they're, they're beaten badly. They're absolutely destroyed. 120,000 trained soldiers are killed in one day. And the Israelite army captures 200,000 of their women and children, intending to make them slaves. Now, instead of sending an army to rescue those captives, do you know who the Lord sent? Did you notice? He sends a prophet. He sends a prophet to that northern kingdom with a warning. Now, I would expect no one to heed that prophet's warning. There really was no reason for them to listen to that prophet's warning. Really no chance, humanly speaking, that this would actually turn out poorly for them. They got tons of slaves. This is hugely profitable for them. Why would they say no? Judah can't take their army and say, bring our women and children back. They can't do them. But the unthinkable happens. Absolutely unthinkable. The Spirit of the Lord opens the ears and softens the hearts of some of the chiefs and heads of houses of Israel to fear the Lord, to tremble at his word, to trust the warnings in the word of God. And these men realize that God's wrath, which justly fell on Judah, is also hanging over Israel for their sins. Now there is no house of Israel, northern kingdom called Israel or southern kingdom called Judah. None of them can boast. None of them can say God is good to us because we are righteous. None can claim that they are the family of God because they are godly, because they share some family trait with God. So some of these men, sinful enemies of the son of David, right? They're the enemies now of the son of David in the south. They've just attacked and defeated him and his people. They are cut to the heart and they realize their sin before God. And so they clothe and they feed and they bandage and they carry the people of the son of David. They carry them back to Jericho on donkeys and then leaving them well cared for with the loot that they had just won in battle. They return back to Samaria so the whole people of God now divided into two kingdoms, Judah and Israel, they have all demonstrated that they are not naturally the children of God, but are naturally at heart enemies of God. And that is our first point. 
that God is unashamed to bring enemies into his family. They've demonstrated they're not naturally children of God, but are naturally at heart, they are enemies of God. Born in sin, born with hearts that hate God and see God as an enemy, and therefore hearts uh, that God rightly sees them as his enemies. And to these sinful people, God has made promises. He became their God. He intends to show them that this is all of grace. Grace is the opposite of a wage. If you want to know the opposite of what grace means, wage. Something you've earned, something you've, you deserve. God is showing that his kindness to Israel, to Judah, to the sons of David, him being kind to them was, was very similar to the way that they had just been treated by the Samaritans. His kindness to them was a kindness to a wicked, hateful enemy who was just trying to destroy his kingdom. It's not the kindness that one shows to a friend that's been good to them or has cared for them and been faithful to them. Now, this is clearly the source of Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan. There really can be no question here. This is clearly the source of that parable. And the, the point of that parable is not merely to teach you how to be a loving person, how to be a Christian. Absolutely not. Now, clearly it does show us what love is. But it is more than that, teaching us about God's love for his people. It's the love that takes helpless enemies and treats them like family. God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were still enemies, he sent his son to save us. For a friend or family member, one would maybe, maybe dare to die. But for enemies who hate you and wish to kill you and your family or wish to remove you from the throne, no one would dare to die. And that was all of us without exception. So dear Christian, if you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, and if you've heard the gospel that Jesus has died for your sins and risen from the dead, and you believe it, and you entrust your soul to that gospel and to that Savior, you were saved, but what has happened is not God saving a good person, but a holy God saving an enemy in full rebellion against him, picking you up, clothing you with fine clothes, feeding you, and carrying you at great cost to himself. It is the Son of God not being ashamed to call you brothers and sisters, even though the world and you can find many reasons why he should be ashamed to call you brothers and sisters. It's not because you naturally are so, but because he has purchased that right for you with his own blood. That is the love of God toward those who believe in his son. And that faith that God has, has also graciously given to you, you wouldn't believe if it weren't for the grace of God, giving you faith? Now the prophet called the Samaritans to treat these enemy captives as brothers, and miracle of miracles, the Samaritans responded. 
And that is a mere shadow of the affection with the Lord Jesus, of the Lord Jesus Christ. The only man that can actually say that he belongs rightly in the family of God. That is the, the shadow of the affection that caused him to die for enemies. And that causes him to be unashamed to call us brothers and sisters. That is our first point. Leads us to our second point, which is this. Why we should delight in the fear of the Lord. Why, should, why we should delight in the fear of the Lord. And so Ahaz, he's the man who currently holds the title, not now, but at the time of this passage, he currently holds the title of son of David, an important title. He didn't fear the Lord. And it's not that he didn't fear. He's a man of great fear, as you can see. He just, it, wasn't just, it was just that it was not the Lord who was his fear. So let's see this as we continue reading in verse 16. 2 Chronicles 28, 16. At that time, King Ahaz sent to the king of Assyria for help. For the Edomites had again invaded and defeated Judah and carried away captives. And the Philistines had made raids on the cities of Shephelah and the Negev of Judah and had taken Beth Shemesh, Ijalon, Gedaroth, and Soko with its villages, Timnah with its villages, Gimzo with its villages. And they settled there. For the Lord humbled Judah because of Ahaz, king of Israel, for he had made Judah act sinfully and had been very unfaithful to the Lord. So Tiglath-Pileser, king of Syria, king of Assyria, came against him and afflicted him instead of strengthening him. For Ahaz took a portion from the house of the Lord and the house of the king and of the princes and gave tribute to the king of Assyria, but it didn't help him. In the time of his distress, he became yet more faithless to the Lord, this same King Ahaz. For he sacrificed to the gods of Damascus that had defeated him and said, because the gods of the kings of Syria helped them, I will sacrifice to them that they may help me. But they were the ruin of him in all Israel. And Ahaz gathered together the vessels of the house of God and cut into pieces the vessels of the house of God. And he shut up the doors of the house of the Lord. And he made himself altars in every corner of Jerusalem. In every city of Judah, he made high places to make offerings to other gods, provoking to anger the Lord, the God of his fathers. Now the rest of the acts and all his ways from first to last, behold, they are written in the book of kings of Judah and Israel. And Ahaz slept with his fathers and they buried him in the city in Jerusalem for they did not bring him into the tombs of the kings of Israel. And Hezekiah, his son, reigned in his place. Thus far the word of the Lord. Now, I wonder if you notice this son of David who has no fear of the Lord, but tons of fear. See that? He's got great fear of Israel to the north of him. Great fear of Syria. Great fear of the gods of Syria. Great fear of Assyria, the up-and-coming empire that's going to destroy Israel and Syria. Now, he hopes that its king, Tiglath-Pileser, would rescue him from Israel and Syria. And so he steals from the temple to pay, but it didn't work. Tiglath-Pileser afflicted him rather than strengthening him. We met Isaiah last week, the prophet Isaiah. He was called as prophet in the year that Uzziah, Ahaz's grandfather, died. The year that 
Ahaz's dad Jotham began his reign is when Isaiah was called as a prophet. Now Isaiah is sent to Ahaz to speak to him about what he fears. And we're going to find this in Isaiah chapter 7. If you've got your Bibles, turn to Isaiah chapter 7. Because a prophet, Isaiah, is sent to Ahaz to address Ahaz's fears. In the days of Ahaz, son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. We read that just now, didn't we? When the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, which would be Israel, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Sher Jeshub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field, and say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear. And do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin of Syria and the son of Remaliah. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah have devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it. And let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord, it shall not stand. It shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you are not firm in your faith, you will not be firm at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask for a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol, or as high as the heaven. But Ahaz says, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you have to weary God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For behold, the boy knows how to refuse so before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the days of Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. In that day, the Lord will whistle for the fly that's at the end of the streams of Egypt and for the bee that's in the land of Assyria. And they will come and settle in the steep ravines and in the clefts of the rocks and on all the thorn bushes and all the pastures. In that day, the Lord will shave with a razor that is hired beyond the river with the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the feet, and it will sweep away the beard also. In that day, a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep, and because of the abundance of milk that they give, he will eat curds, for everyone who is left in the land will eat curds and honey. In that day, every place where there used to be a thousand vines worth a thousand shekels of silver will become briars and thorns. With bows and arrows, a man will come there for all the land with briars and thorns. And for all the hills that used to be hoed with a hoe, you will not come there for fear of briars and thorns. But they will become a place where cattle are let loose and where sheep tread. 
Then the Lord said to me, Bring a large tablet and write on it in common characters, belonging to Mereshalel Hashbaz. And I will get reliable witnesses, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jerobachiah, to attest for me. And I went into the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, Call his name Mereshalel Hashbaz, for before the, Lord, before the boy knows how to cry, My father and my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. The Lord spoke to me again. Because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently and rejoice over Rezin, the son of Remaliah. Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the, wa- the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria, and all its glory. And it will rise over all its channels and go over its banks, and it will sweep on into Judah and overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck. And its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O oh, Emmanuel, be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. Emmanuel. For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of his people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. And do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him shall you honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken, and they shall be snared and taken up. Bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples, and I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel for the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancer who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to his word, to this word, it's because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry, and when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth and behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. The word of the Lord for now. So God, through Isaiah, he tells Isaiah, sorry, he tells Ahaz not to fear what the people's fear. Do not be in dread of what they dread. Make the Lord your fear, he says. Make him your dread. Set him as holy. Let God be the transcendent one, the the one who you consider high above you, the one whose favor you want the most, the one whose anger you want the least, the one who you are convinced will remove his enemies, the one you're willing to serve as Lord, have God as your fear. I wonder if you noticed in all of that that he promises that the enemies 
Israel and Syria that Ahaz is terrified of, they're going to be destroyed. Don't be afraid of them. Very quickly, they're going to be destroyed. In fact, there's going to be a child born to a young maiden, and before that child is able to speak or eat solid food or to call his parents mother and father, before that kid is old enough to do those things, those kings that Ahaz is terrified of will be destroyed. You don't have to be afraid of them, Ahaz. Don't be afraid of them. But you should be afraid of the one who's going to destroy those enemies. The Lord's going to send. He's going to whistle like for animals. The Lord's going to send for the king of Assyria to destroy Israel and Syria. But he's also going to destroy you, Judah. And the sign that this happening is actually the Lord's judgment and not Assyria or Syria or Israel's, but the Lord's judgment is the timing in which it happens. And that timing is related to that child born. Before he's old enough to do those things, say mom and dad, know the difference between right and wrong, and eat solid food. Before those things, this is going to happen. And then you will know, because that child is born, you will know that you shouldn't fear them. You should fear the Lord. And so this word comes to Ahaz, but we already know he didn't heed it. Instead of fearing the Lord, instead of rejoicing in the Lord, he reaches out to the king of Assyria. Instead of turning to the Lord God, instead of making God his sphere and dread and master, instead of seeking the favor and the love of God, he seeks the favor of Syria's gods. And that only costs him. It costs him a lot. He had to give up a lot, of, a lot for it. He also sought the favor of the king of Assyria, but you notice as well, it says it, did not, it didn't make him stronger, it only made him weaker. Did you notice the most glorious illustration in all of that that the Lord uses to describe that foolish fear? Did you notice that? Water. Did you catch that? Verse, uh, ch- chapter 8, verse 5, the Lord spoke to me again. Because this people, listen to this, because the people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently... And rejoice over Rezin, the son of Remaliah. Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria in all its glory. And will rise over its channels and go over all its banks. It will sweep on into Judah, overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck. And its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. So he is describing the fear of the Lord. Rejoicing in the Lord. Having God as the Holy One who use, whose favor you most want. He compares that to the waters of a, of a quiet stream that refresh and give life. But Ahaz rejected that water. He chose a different fear. And that means what he thought was a better delight a better glory, a better safety, a better joy, a better power, a more fearful judge. He considered the king of Assyria to be a better fear than the fear of the Lord. But it was to his undoing. Friends, there's no better fear. There's no better ruler. There's no one better to fear than the Lord. Every other fear will destroy you. The water of Assyria reached all the way up to the neck, and it drowned them. It didn't produce life. It destroyed it. It ruined it. It ruined the ones who sought its favor. The fear of the Lord is alone good. Now, dear brothers and sisters, we are prone to fear everything. 
everything but the Lord himself. But the fear of the Lord is alone good. Proverbs 19.23, the fear of the Lord leads to life and whoever has it rests satisfied. That's, that's Psalm 23 kind of stuff. Still waters. Proverbs 14.27, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. Psalm 19.9, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Psalm 112.1, blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. The fear of the Lord comes with rich joy and rejoicing in life abundantly. Now, brothers and sisters, unbelieving guests, you may fear many things. You may fear public shame. It may be to be poor that you fear. It might be pain. It might be failure. It might be hardship. It might be death. It may be missing out on pleasure. It may be the fear of man. It may be boredom. It may be imprisonment. It may be COVID. It may be the COVID vaccine. It may be nationalism or capitalism or socialism. It may be governments using too much authority or not enough authority. It might be Trump or Biden or Xi or Putin or the Taliban or Trudeau or hackers or loneliness or being on the wrong side of history or critical race theory or racism or police or Antifa or taxes or market crashes or inflation. These things can't be your fear. Let Isaiah's words ring in your ears, dear brothers and sisters. Do not call conspiracy what they call conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be in dread. Dear church, enough of this nonsense. Enough of it. No matter what your favorite famous pastor tells you on YouTube or on a podcast, even if that person's reformed or conservative or liberal or progressive, I don't care. The word of God doesn't care. Even if they tell you that this is the Bible's interpretation of these things, so we have to be afraid of them, enough. We are fearing what the world fears and calling it Christianity. Nonsense. Oh, dear brothers and sisters, we have something much better. We have the fear of the Lord. We fear the Messiah who's going to destroy those things which the world fears, along with the ones who fear them. And so we are free to seek his kingdom and righteousness and leave the rest to the Lord our God. His fear is like still waters which revive the soul. Those other fears and the ones who promise to protect us from them, right, left, reformed, it doesn't matter. They end up robbing us of life and rest and joy and water up to our neck. But Jesus is our peace and he is our still waters. And he came to give life abundantly. Doesn't mean he's going to come to make us wealthy just means getting rid of all those stupid other fears and slaveries to those false gods. Unlike the fears of the world and those who promise us an answer to them. And yes, people calling themselves reformed pastors are promising answers to those stupid fears. If the greatest concern of your heart right now or the solution that you preach to yourself or others or maybe even the top three of those 
is one of those things. Dear friends, you may have swapped out the still waters of Shiloh for the rushing, destroying waters of Assyria. Enough with conspiracy theories on the left and on the right, which both claim to be Christian. The disciples of the Messiah who wait for him, they turn to the word of the Lord plainly taught without a stupid commentator essentially acting as a soothsayer and weighing in on the world's events and pretending to use the Bible as the guide for what to fear among those world events. That is a distraction from the preaching of the gospel of Christ. It's a distraction of hating our own sin and leaning on God's grace and power to help us to live holy lives that please him. Distracting from true discipleship to the word and to the testimony, says Isaiah. For those who are hoping in the Messiah, who have made him their fear and who have set him apart as the Holy One that they're going to fear and whose favor they most want. Now the first reason the fear of the Lord is good is that he is the one who is most to be feared. He's going to destroy all those other fears, isn't he? They may be able, with God's permission, to destroy your body or take your money or your freedom. He alone can destroy the soul in hell. In him is forgiveness of sins. Therefore, he is to be feared, says Psalm 130, verse 4. That's why the fear of the Lord is good. He alone can forgive sins. Second reason the fear of the Lord is good is that all those other fears sap life and remove rest and delight and joy. But in Christ, he gives rest and joy and life in the fear of the Lord. Our last point is this. The coming of Emmanuel will bring an utter end to sin. The prophet Isaiah speaks of children. Did you notice that? Children being born as signs to Isaiah that the Lord is going to have done this and will complete it in the great Messiah. So we've already met Mayor Shalal Hashbaz. And that means destruction's coming quick. That's what that means. We've met the child born to the virgin who's going to be called Emmanuel. We've met the child born, we've also met Sher Jeshub. And his name means a remnant. That means only a small little piece is going to return. So Mereshel Hashbaz, it's not super, uh, it's, not, it's not airtight, but he's likely the child born to the maiden that was eventually called Emmanuel the one who, would, who is not going to be able to speak or eat solid food or say mom and dad uh, until Judah's enemies are destroyed. But he's not the ultimate Emmanuel, but he's just a shadow, a, a proof that that Emmanuel would be born. The final Emmanuel that would be born of a virgin by a miracle. The Lord Jesus Christ. The original Emmanuel was born to a young woman who conceived naturally. Isaiah's children were a sign, we read, a sign that the Lord would send Emmanuel. And his birth would be a sign that sin would soon be brought to an utter end. And now, let's continue reading in Isaiah, in chapter 9. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, whose 
those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden, the staff before his oppressor, and the rod of his oppressor, staff of his shoulder, and the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Why? For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government of of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Thus far the word of the Lord. He's calling us to long for the great Messiah, the great Emmanuel, who's also going to be the son of David, and he's also clearly going to be the Lord God. And his coming is going to mean utter destruction of sin and sinners. It's also going to be cause of great rejoicing for those to whom he is born, to those whom he was given to. And though the Lord Jesus is Lord of all, whether you call him Lord or not, he is Lord. He is master, he's king, he's Messiah. But he is given to the church. He was born for the people of God. Who's that? The people who believe in the gospel, who trust in him. He's given to us as our head. And that means that the first time he came when he was born, when he left heaven and became human, that means he was born for us. He was born to live a life that would count for us. He was born to die a death, to take our wrath and judgment that we deserve. He was born to be raised from the dead to conquer death for us. And so now, instead of dreading the coming of Emmanuel, we can rejoice in it. Because he has already taken what we deserve, so our hope can only be then what he deserves. I wonder if you noticed that that phrase, Emmanuel, which means God with us, in this passage, it's, it's used in two ways. It's used as a terror. Did you notice that? And it's also used as great rejoicing. God with us. For some people, the coming of the Lord Jesus, the coming of Emmanuel, the second coming, will be a terror. God is with us the God I spent my whole life in rebellion against, the God I've sinned against, the God whose law I've broken, the God who is a wrathful God against sin, God is with us. But for those who fear the Lord, who trust in the Lord Jesus, who've repented of sin and have run to Christ to be redeemed, to be reconciled to God for us, it's the God who died for us. God is with us. Dear church, the fear of the Lord is rich and good and clean. It gives life. Why? Because it leads us to run to the cross, to Emmanuel, who will take our sins and our punishment and our death so that all that is left for us is the glory that he deserves. 
So dear brothers and sisters, do not fear what they fear. Do not dread what they dread. But the Lord, make him your fear. For in him there is forgiveness and adoption. And he is not ashamed to call us, though we can find many reasons to be ashamed of being brother and sister. He is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters because he's taken our shame on the cross and he's buried it in the grave and he left it there. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we rejoice that you've not left us in our stupid fears, that you have opened our eyes to fear you. Lord, that, that you are the one who's, who we would most not want to be angry with us. And we are also the one whose favor we would most delight. The one who's most worthy of rejoicing in and celebrating that we belong to. And Lord, you have given us your son to make that a, a reality. What a good gift. A gift we couldn't deserve. Being your enemies, Lord, we didn't deserve anything good from you, but you sent us your son while we were enemies and clothed us fed us, forgave us, and adopted us. Lord, let that be our great delight. And let us be afraid of nothing else. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.